Hi there, welcome along to another episode of the High Performance Podcast. But we're going to start by not talking about the podcast because we have some really big news. Damien and I are so excited to make this announcement. Damien, do you want to do it or shall I? No, you do it, Jake. No, you do it. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a book coming out. Woo! I what, Damien, man? When you do- No. When I say do you want to do it, you've got to literally go... We've got a book coming out! <laughs> well, we have. We've got, a, we've got a book coming out. We've got a book coming out. We, we're incredibly proud that we've uh, been writing a book over the last 12 months, haven't we, Jake? Where, and it's, um, it's due to come out towards the end of this year. We're, we're both incredibly excited to share it with you. So excited. So excited. Um, it's called, would you believe it, <laughs> High Performance. Um, it's being published by Penguin Random House. It will be out on the 9th of December. Now, obviously, that is really big news because look, it's not just Damien and I taking the things we've talked about in the podcast. We're also applying some science. We're discussing it in a way you've not sort of heard us talk about it before. Lots of personal experiences as well. And we're trying to sort of bring all the things across all the episodes that people have reacted to on the High Performance Podcast into one place, which will be the book. Um, that's big news, but also... You can pre-order it right now. The link is in the podcast description. It's also all over our social media. So you can go to at Liquid Thinker, which is where Damien is on Instagram. I'm at Jake Humphrey on Instagram, Mr. Jake Humphrey on Twitter. You can follow High Performance on Instagram. All of those places, there'll be information right this very moment about how you can pre-order the book right now from Amazon. We just want to take things even further. Um, I know we don't want to give away too much at this stage, Damien, um, but what would you like to tell people at this point that, that doesn't say too much but mm, kind of tells them enough? Like My favourite definition of high performance is how do you do the best you can with the knowledge you've got in the place that you're in? So it's almost about, it's not about being a world champion. It's not about making millions. It's about how do you introduce high performance from the place that you start from? And I think it breaks down a lot of those principles and gives you some easy ways into high performance that you can introduce to you uh, in your personal or your professional life. I love that. That is exactly what this book is. Um, and if you pre-order it right now, you will be one of the first people you will receive it on that morning on the 9th of December. Um, I know it's a while to wait, but trust me, the wait is going to be worth it. And thanks, Damien, for giving it the big sell. <laughs> I know, I'm not a natural marketer. You'll have to forgive me for that. <laughs> Listen, mate, content is king and it's, it's all about what's inside the book. So there you go. One more time, the high performance book published by Penguin Random House is coming your way on the 9th of December. You can pre-order it right now from Amazon. We couldn't be more excited. But right now, let's get back to what we do. And that's bringing you episodes of the High Performance Podcast. Thank you to you for listening. Here is today's episode of the High Performance Podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. As ever, my personal professor, my awesome author, my learned lecturer, Damien Hughes, is with us. And today's guest is not just an elite athlete, Damien. He's a 14-time world champion, double world record holder, but also a guy with remarkable resilience and a genuine high-performance growth mindset that has seen him overcome his congenital eye condition to end up representing his country. What are you most looking forward to learning about? I'm really excited about today's uh, podcast, Jake. Um, And I think the theme for me that really came out of it is this idea of just don't stay stuck. I think all of us at certain times find ourselves in situations or circumstances where we often feel a little bit stuck or helpless and to know how to get out of it. And our guest today is a is a perfect example of somebody that's just refused to be stuck in a certain position and found ways out. And I'm excited to explore that. Well, let's welcome then to the High Performance Podcast, Paralympic athlete Neil Faki, MBE. Neil, thanks so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. But in actual fact, we got an email from you saying, I've listened to Sir as well, I'd love to be involved. So obviously... Um, that's something that we love because it's people that really understand where the podcast is coming from. But also, you clearly had a message that you felt you wanted to share with with the listeners of the High Performance Podcast. Yeah, I mean, firstly, yeah, I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. I mean, combining the world of sport, obviously, you both have interest there with that world of high performance. Really, you know, something that really interests me because um, I've been involved in elite sport for over a decade and been at the top of my sport for a lot of that time. And it's only kind of now that I'm at the end of my career reflecting back, I can, can see the sort of lessons I've learned along the way. And I just kind of want to share some of that experience and that kind of attitude about how you find that mindset to, as Damien said, not be stuck and to keep making that little improvement day on day to keep moving forwards because the world of sport and, and business, everything, you know, everything's moving fast, the world is changing and you've got to stay ahead of the competition. So if I ask you then, when you were listening to Series 1 of the pod, what's the one the number one thing that you really felt an urge to share with the listeners? Um, well, one of the, the episodes I really enjoyed actually was, I think a lot of people did, was the, the Robin Van Persie when he was speaking, that moment when he, he talked about speaking to his son and um, passing all that information of, you know, I'm going to love you no matter what. If you want to be a loser, be a loser. Um, but, you know, this is how you, you, you have to kind of take responsibility. And I think that's something I... I perhaps have learned over the years is that with my disability, my condition, that for a long time I was in denial about having a disability at all. I kind of hid it from the world. And it's only in recent years I've become more confident that I've realized having that something unique and different about myself that might be perceived as a weakness, I actually find as a, a real great strength and something now that I'm, I'm proud to share the fact that I have a disability. And I actually can use my my weakness as a strength and something that kind of helps move me forward in the world. And I think lots of people could learn from that. So do you think then that you do have a disability? 
Because disability is such a negative phrase, isn't it? You know, I, you've got something that's different to me and different to Damien, but actually almost gives you something that we don't have. Yeah, and, and that's the way I've often looked at it. I mean, it was something, as I say, when I was younger, my teenage years, I probably resented it. Um, but I've realised, looking back, that, yeah, that ability to problem solve has been incredible for me. So, like, my eye condition gets worse over time. So I have faced the realistic probability at some point in my life I'll go totally blind. At this point, I still have some sight, but it's quite blurry. Uh, and when I was younger, it was much better. So I've constantly had to adapt how how I go about in the world, how I how I was educated at school that was constantly changing and it's just problem solving that I've, I've kind of really learned and I actually really enjoy problem solving now that ability to overcome something and, and find a way to do it I find really exciting so yeah I, I think in many ways I'm quite lucky um, however if you were to offer me my eyesight back I'd probably snap your hand off to be honest but the word disability I don't know I don't hate it to be honest it's something that's often discussed but I, I don't really see it as a negative myself anymore, but that's probably because I'm surrounded by other people with disabilities who are excelling at what they do. So can we explore this idea then, Neil, about you described it as problem solving and I described it as the ability to not remain stuck. Would you break that process down? Because it sounds like it's something you've had to learn from quite a young age of when you're faced with a challenge. How do you go about dealing with that? Yeah, interesting question. I like that. It's um, For me, initially, I think it was that case of just trying to prove people wrong. Um, I said, I didn't really accept my disability. I wanted to I wanted to do the things that other people did. So for a long time, I used that kind of almost chip on the shoulder mentality where, you know, people said, oh, you know, someone with your, your eyesight shouldn't be doing these things. And so, um, I just wanted to prove that I can. And it was just that fighting attitude. But to be honest, in later life, it's kind of changed a lot where now it's that ability to, to reflect on situations that are tough. And I've gone through quite a lot in my, my sporting career where I've, I've hit real low points. And, um, you know, you've had to take that. You don't always just bounce back straight away. And it's not that easy that you're just a, a resilient person who can take a knock and just carry on. But now it's a case more of, you take that time to, to almost go through a group grieving process where you take the loss on board, take that step back and look at it from a different perspective. And I think that's the key thing I've learned is taking different perspectives, taking a step back from the emotion and looking at things logically and then just realizing that there's a bigger picture. There's more, more opportunities, there's more angles you can approach things at. And it's just, um, I find that ability to step back and, and look at it and take on board what other people kind of suggest from, from a different angle as well. So. It's just not being that that one individual who's in it. You know, you're, that old phrase, you, you can't see the wood for the trees is, um, is pretty common, particularly in sport, to be honest. It's, it's a, a lot of it's quite individualised. I was reading something the other day and it said that um, when you stumble across problems in life, 90% of struggling with that problem is the way you react to it. 10% is actually only the problem itself. And that's kind of just redressing this something that we talk about a lot which is fault against responsibility not being a victim that's what this is about isn't it it's about focusing on the 90 percent, the reaction to the problem rather than quite often the the fact that the problem itself is is possible to get through it and get past it with the right mindset yeah something i often realize is that the thought of doing something is is far harder than the actual doing as well so it's that initial step which is the hardest um, and I find that every day, to be honest, in training where I get up in the morning, I look at my training program and think, oh, not again, you know, it's, it's hideous. Um, 
and the thought of actually getting up and doing it is just so hard but if you find a way um to kind of create that mindset that just takes helps you take that first step it's incredible once you get that momentum going how much you can just plow through it so i think that's where that 10 percent really comes from it's just finding that first step and it's almost as simple as that you take that first step and once you're on the journey then generally people don't stop so that's something i've had to train my mind how to to overcome and and accept fear and you know just roll with it to be honest because you you realize that that's where the kind of the good things lie are at the end of that path once you actually do take those steps into the unknown damien a lot of successful people say that they don't even entertain the idea of negative thoughts but what neil is sort of describing there is that despite everything he's achieved he still has the negativity in there he still wakes up and thinks ah training again but he's learned the tricks to deal with that. I think what Neil's describing there is something that we've touched on with previous guests, Jake, of this idea of there's a psychologist called Gary Klein talks about pre-mortems. So what can kill your hopes and your dreams and your ambitions is often um, the fears, the negativity and things like that. And I think by acknowledging those fears and working out how do we overcome them, that improves our resilience to then be able to confront them. Yeah, and it's... um... It's a really interesting one because I think uh, I think back to when I was young, looking at elite athletes that I almost saw as being like these Greek gods who were, you know, almost like mythical beings that the rest of us mere mortals couldn't live up to. Um, incredibly resilient, could just take anything on board. You know, think back to like so Steve Redgrave, Chris Hoy, all those guys who really inspired me. And it wasn't until you kind of get involved in elite sport you realize that there is this real... Uh, not mental weakness, but real uncertainty with elite athletes who are so involved in their sport that just the, the odd little um, bump in the road can be this huge like destabilization for them. It's incredible. So I don't think most sports people are these incredibly resilient, thick-skinned, tough people by any means, but most of them have this sort of system in place to to deal with those negative emotions. And I have, I have them all the time. I mean, I think those seconds when I'm on the start line, so my race, there's a a clock by the side of the track that counts you into your race effort counting down from 15 seconds and you just see this clock ticking down sort of 10 seconds to go and the thoughts racing through your head at that point aren't generally positive ones of all right i'm really looking forward to this you know a world championship it's all been for this moment instead you're thinking like i don't want to be here this is terrifying like what if it all goes wrong and it's just getting bombarded with these negative thoughts and i think it's just that ability to realize that in certain situations, that's what's going to happen anyway. Um, and you can almost disregard 90% of those thoughts straight away as just being, well, it's because of the situation I'm in. Um, and the other is I think you you learn these techniques. And I guess I just learned by doing, but now it's I can sort of put that into to practice that there are ways to overcome those sort of the ones that keep coming back and time and time again. So would you explain some of the ways then, Neil? Because Chris Hoy used a great phrase with us that he said that for a long time he used to pretend to be a lion, but he actually felt like a pussycat in those moments. <laughs> so would you describe how you overcame those moments of terror? So there's one in particular where at the start of our event where you're putting all that power into the bike, uh, so you're going from stationary to suddenly putting huge force through the bike. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, potential for things going wrong and things break on the bike and we had a lot of issues for a while where things kept breaking and I started to get those negative thoughts in my head where subconsciously when I was starting I would hold back just a fraction just to make sure everything was fine 
before I really committed. And I couldn't switch it off no matter what I did. Just this, um, was all, like I say, I, I'd be thinking fully, like, I'm just going to commit, I'm going to commit. But no matter what happened, there was always this little subconscious, one or 2% just took off the gas. And I had to work with a, a sports psychologist for a while just to, to find what was going on. And she taught me just a really simple trick that I could train. It's kind of like a, an NLP trigger, neuro-linguistic programming, where you're creating an anchor that triggers a different emotion in your head. So all I had to do was practice gripping my handlebars three times before I did a start. And I trained my mind to think about sort of real moments where I felt confident, where I felt strong beforehand. So just by repeating this process of linking that sort of action to that thought, then what tended to happen was after a while that I just gripped the bars and those thoughts of confidence and strength and power just sort of came flooding in and those negative thoughts disappeared. And suddenly that one or 2% overcame and I was able to commit fully again. So it's, you know, just finding these little things just to overcome those little issues. And, and that's been massively powerful to me. Damien, why do us humans have brains that need these little tricks for us to get through? What's that about? Wouldn't it be brilliant if we were given a brain where we just believe, like, you know, that um, the film Limitless, where you feel limitless. Wouldn't it be brilliant if we were given these limitless brains rather than having to employ tricks? Because it's Neil on an Olympic start line. Well, it might, uh, someone I know used to have to do a very similar thing before going out for a public meal because they were anxious eating in public. So the, this is an identical situation to someone who would be listening to this podcast who suffers a social anxiety or something else and they, they're taught tricks to deal with it. Sure, but we, we're using Stone Age technology in the 21st century world. So our brains are wired predominantly to keep us alive and help us procreate. So it's wired to look for threats. And however we perceive a threat, whether it's the public uh, dining and eating out or whether it's, in Neil's case, the idea of uh, committing to go and put yourself in that gladiatorial arena, your brain is still hardwired to be on hyper alert for any potential threat to your very survival. So it does a really good job, but in our 21st century tech world that where those threats are not as real as they would have been 10,000 years ago, it's not caught up yet to let us know that we can, so we have to have these little tips or techniques that just help us overcome it and convince us that we are safe regardless of however it it might feel in the moment. That in itself actually, Neil, is quite calming, isn't it? Just to think that the only reason why you're feeling anxious on the start line is because you have a prehistoric brain like all of us do that hasn't yet caught up with the modern world. That in itself takes you away from that moment and is quite sort of centering, isn't it? Yeah. You know, there's a really interesting stat as well that um, always makes me feel a bit more comfortable is that I think we have somewhere between 60 and 80,000 individual thoughts every day um, on average. I mean, I know some people who have significantly less, I'd say, but uh, most of us <laughs> would be around that amount. And, and most of them are obviously absolute rubbish, you know. I, I think of some of the thoughts I have, and um, particularly in high-stress moments where these things pop in your head that you know are completely unacceptable, that you never speak out loud. But that thought that these thoughts are just these sort of electrochemical impulses going on in your head that are just so bizarre, and um, it just helps you disregard some of them. And ones that you think are these really important negative thoughts are actually probably just rubbish and it's a way of your brain trying to sabotage you somehow. And how much did you share those thoughts with other people around you? Was there ever a situation where you and other members of, of the team would say, oh, I'm having a nightmare, I've got to grip my handlebars three times before this race? Or was that considered a no-go area for, for athletes? 
Um, yeah, to be honest, I hadn't really discussed them a lot until I wrote my book recently and sort of put them out there sort of posthumously afterwards. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I speak about them with a psychologist, but and occasionally with my coach, although you're always a little bit conscious that you don't want to appear weak in any way to those who make those decisions of selection and, and who goes to the big races. So it's still, I think, that conception that having this, an area of, of mental, not even weakness, but where you're just not quite selling is still, I don't think we're comfortable in sport yet with, uh, with kind of sharing that. And, you know, if you had an injury, you would go and, Share, spread the word you speak to your physio you speak to your coach and you rehab but I don't think we do that mentally at all by any means so it's improving but no I definitely didn't share that with anyone um until later in my career but it's um it's interesting looking back because more people have come to me now and, and kind of said similar stories they've had as well um which I had no idea to be honest it's interesting that isn't it Damien yeah very I think uh, this was one of the things that again um we've explored with um Chris Hoy was at the vanguard of um of this, and he said that when uh, Steve Peters was first brought in, Neil, he said that um, he had quite a cataclysmic failure in 2003 World Championships where he choked on the start line, and it was only that crisis that forced him to go and seek help from somebody from the mental aspect of um, uh, of his performance that was a catalyst. What I'm interested in, Neil, if you don't mind exploring, though, is that you have a different relationship than some of the other athletes that we work with because you had to work with a pilot, somebody that you had a relationship where it had to be built on trust and honesty and candour. Would you explain a little bit about that relationship that our listeners might be able to take something from so yeah as a, a visually impaired bike rider um obviously that sounds terrifying to most people but i ride on a tandem bike so i ride on the back of the bike with a, a fully sighted person on the front and they're they're known as a pilot so it's a, a tandem bike two people it's a, a sport for two a bit like pairs rowing you know we're both pedaling as hard as we can um so it's very much a, a team sport and obviously i'm entirely putting my faith in someone to to ensure they they get us around the track safely and, and we don't crash. Um, so, you know, it's definitely a relationship that needs to be built over time. Um, it's not for F1 riding on the back of the tandem either. It's sort of speeds of over 70 kilometers per hour. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, uh, it's exhilarating, but if you're someone that likes being in control, it's not the place for you by any means. So I have to put an incredible amount of faith into them, not only that they'll keep me safe, but obviously that they're going to, put their bodies on the line physically as well when we go to race because you know I'm, I'm training full-time to race at this one occasion at a Paralympics every four years and I of course expect my teammates to be there putting themselves on the line as well so it's very much a team sport in that regard and I think that's why I enjoy it so much I used to be an athlete a runner just running on my own and I just love that team element that interaction with someone else and getting the most out of them as well as yourself it's, it's really interesting so how did you recruit a pilot then well the recruiting process comes through British Cycling themselves so I don't technically get a say in who I ride with um which can lead to you not always riding with someone you you particularly like as well which you know in many team sports we have to you know, work with different characters, people we get on better with than others. But ultimately, whoever you're riding with, it's the job to, to go as quick as you can as a pairing. Um, so, you, you know, you have to approach different relationships in very different ways. And I've, I've had many different pilots over the years. You know, I've, I've been around a bit, to be honest. And, um, 
you have now won world champs with uh, with four different pilots, and each one's got a very different character, a very different riding style as well. So, you know, you have to adapt both the way you you work as a team and kind of physically how you you kind of ride the bike together as well. So, there's a lot of nuance to it, and it does take a lot of time. But it's um, it's been a really interesting way to reflect on your own performance as well as seeing how other elite athletes train and compete and and try and get the most out of you. So in the best relationships with your pilot, when you when you felt that you were um, being able to perform at your absolute capacity, how would you define that relationship? You know, probably when I've been at my best, it's, uh, it's particularly been with my, my latest pilot, Matt, when we've, you know, we've pushed the sport onto to whole new boundaries, breaking world records, and we're very different characters. So we bring very different things to the table, but I think it's just... Um, almost almost a ruthlessness when we're, we're competing that we'll both put ourselves completely on the line day in day out in training to, to be there and when we actually go race like there are some people who perform at the same level in training that they do when they go and compete but we're both individuals who when that big occasion comes the pressure hits that we find like a whole different level of performance and that's something I'm really proud that we do is you know, the big days are when we break the records because the pressure is high, but we use that to our advantage to really power us on. And, um, you know, just that, that competition day buzz is, yeah, I think we're, we're pretty ruthless when we come together. So, but how explicit are you in, uh, so when you first come together to work with each other about the non-negotiables, the rules, how you're going to communicate? Yeah. I mean, we've had some frank meetings, to be honest, uh, where, we kind of work together for a little bit and we see where things in each other that we don't particularly like we see weaknesses in each other and then sometimes you just have to come together in a room with you know shut the doors maybe just us two and our, our coach the three of us chat it out and talk about like well you know i saw that you do this in training and i didn't think it was uh was really in line with with our kind of work what we want to do what our beliefs are really calling it out and it's it's hard to hear to be honest um you know we both have some tough things to say about one another but taking those moments to to do that without knowing there's not going to be ramifications once that door's opened again and you leave you've said your piece we've we've kind of talked it out and then we go away and take the emotion out of it take time to think and realize that the other one wants the same thing we do um it's just a case of how we approach it is slightly different and it's, it's incredible how we've kind of both progressed because of that. And in the spirit of openness and honesty, Neil, would you be willing to share with us things that your partner has said about you that weren't good enough and how you addressed them? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not someone that generally shows my emotions bar on race day when, you know, across the finish line, suddenly I, I release it. So I often come into training and seem quite negative because I'm, I'm kind of straight faced. I guess I've got that typical Scottish approach, you know, quite, quite dour. Um, and I just get on with the job. And I think often that appears that I'm not interested. I'm not really buying in. And uh, I'm also not always particularly chatty. You know, I just get the job done, get in, do the job and, you know, push myself to the limit. But it's quite internalized. And I think often my partner doesn't think I'm, maybe giving it my all because he's quite a emotions on the sleeve kind of guy. And, you know, he's there big enough one up and, you know, it's hard to hear that often I come across as someone that looks like they're, they're not really trying. They're not really part of the group. And I had to take that on board and um, learn to adapt and, you know, open up and accept 
every day that I could I could speak to my group, I could encourage them, and I could you know just chat things out a bit more. So just not being quite so. I guess, as I say, coming from that individual sport, I was still individualized and not really maybe part of the wider team. Um, so it, it's hard to change these things, but I knew I needed to do it. It's a good point that, Damien, I think for anyone listening to this who, who are not in elite sport, but who work in a team environment, and that pretty much captures almost everyone that would listen to this, whether it's a family environment or an office environment or going out for a drink with your mates kind of environment. So often we think as long as we're doing what we know is the right thing, that's enough. But that is a really good example there from Neil, that in this world, to really get to the absolute top where you want to go, it's not just going there, it's taking people on the journey with you. Yeah, very much. And that's why I think what Neil's describing is, again, something that we've seen as a regular theme of feedback with people on behaviours, not on personality. So challenge somebody about how they appear. So like Neil's describing, you're challenging, you appear to not be trying, you appear to be quite dour. That's a behavior that he can either explain or he can change, but you're not attacking you as a person and saying that you're miserable or, or, or you, you're not committed, which leaves you space to, to again, not feel stuck. Is that right, Neil? Yeah. And to be honest, sometimes I am miserable. So maybe that is a fair point, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, of course, like that, I think that has to be the thing that, it's easy when you get in these heated discussions to um, to sometimes maybe pick up on that that kind of aspect. But if you are talking about how you appear, then yeah, it's fair enough. You know, I, I'm well aware that I don't always appear as Mister Positive or, or anything. But um, if you if I explain to you and you understand that you are getting everything from me, then I think that changes. Um, so and yeah, when we come to compete, <laughs> my partner Matt does see that emotion kind of bringing itself out on race day, like I say. So we're in a good place now. And so I'm sure we'll have more of those frank discussions in time as well. Now, I'm interested in exploring something that we haven't touched on yet, Neil, which is the is the first part of your career as a sprinter as opposed to a cyclist. Now, there's not many that make that transition as you've done. So would you explain a little bit about the rationale of what led you to be successful in one endeavour and then decide to do something completely different yeah in terms of my my athletics career I mean I don't consider it particularly successful looking back uh it was mediocre I was a one and 200 meter runner and I ultimately I made it to the the Beijing games in 2008 and I finished ninth in both my events top eight making the final um and you know that was my first experience of a games and I absolutely fell in love with the Paralympics at that point it's just I hadn't really realized how big it was. I mean, the, the TV coverage wasn't great even back then. And obviously it's, um, you know, it's completely rocketed since. So uh, kind of walking into the village and looking around at this incredibly diverse place where you've got people from all across the globe, all with different disabilities. Like it's absolutely the, the most diverse place on earth, the, uh, the athletes village at the Paralympics. And I just fell in love with it. And I knew London was four years away and that thought of, you know, competing at a home games. I thought not many people get that opportunity. And, you know, I love the games now. I just want to be there. And I decided at that point, I need to make progress because, you know, I'm not good enough at the minute coming ninth in the world at this stage. And it's four years away um, and I'm struggling to improve. It's not a good place to be. But I committed that I was going to make changes. I was going to make progress. And then came back from Beijing. And, and two weeks later, I got a phone call from my manager at UK Athletics. And she said, we don't think you've got the potential to make it to London. Your contract's terminated with immediate effect. And just like that, my dream was done. That was it. 
gone. And how old were you at this stage, Neil? Uh, so that was 2008, so I would have been 24. Um, so, you know, I'm not particularly young in, in a sporting sense, but I, I kind of, I think mentally I was still quite juvenile at that point and hadn't really grown. Um, and it was a, a tough few months, if I'm honest, where I I couldn't really see a way out. I ended up, um, you know, I was living at home. My parents kind of encouraged me to start applying for jobs. So I started applying for all kind of work and I couldn't get a job at all. I, even though I had a, a degree from the University of Aberdeen, you know, I was a graduate, I Paralympian, I thought I had it all, but I just couldn't get a job. I was being turned away and I was kind of aware that I think my disability was having a, a negative impact as well at that point where a lot of people were kind of seemed questioning whether I'd be able to, to do the job. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you think you are also putting out a, a feeling of this isn't what you really want to be doing? Do you think there was a, something radiating off you? Oh, almost certainly, to be honest, Jake. I mean, um, I wasn't in a good place anyway, and I still had hopes of making it back into sport. So I don't think I was ever approaching any of these jobs with the idea of this is what I want to do. It was a case of this might pay the bills. Um, but yeah, I couldn't get anything. So I, I just went down the job center and I was, I was signing on. Um, so a year that promised so much going to Paralympics ended with me unemployed and, you know, putting on weight and with no hope really. So it was a real, real low point. And I kind of went through that grieving process almost, uh, as I said before, and I guess I, I worked my way through that and, and started to take, as you spoke before, responsibility for it myself. Initially, I'd been blaming everyone else that they hadn't seen enough potential in me. They hadn't got the most out of me. It was their fault I'd underperformed. And I, I had to work all through that and realized that actually, no, this is on you. Um, and I woke up and thought one day at thought, London 2012, that's, that's your dream. So I decided to to research every sport for visually impaired people at the games and decided I was going to try every single one of them till I found one I might be good enough at that I'd have a chance of making it onto the field of play or onto the start line. 
and just decided that, you know, I, I couldn't really go any lower than where I was, so I might as well give it a go. And I realized that athletics wasn't going to happen for me. I wasn't making progress. So I decided to try cycling, which was a sport that I'd always loved. And they'd obviously just had incredible success with uh, Chris Hoy and, and others in Beijing. So, you know, it was very much at the forefront in the media at the time. And because I was at such a low point, I, I didn't approach the GB paracycling team directly and say, you know, I'm a former athlete. Can I come and have a go? I didn't feel like I had earned that right by any means. So I went along for what's known as a, a taster session at the velodrome in Manchester. Um, didn't tell them I couldn't see very well and got on a, a solo bike and rode around the track just to see if I enjoyed it. And fortunately, I didn't crash. I didn't crash into anyone else. <laughs> and yeah, it was by, by pure chance. Um, I had a bag with Beijing 2008 on, on my back. You know, I was still living on past glories. And someone spotted it and he kind of called me over and got chatting to me. And it turned out it was this guy who was warming up for a GB session that was on afterwards. A guy called Craig McLean. He told me he'd been a, a silver medalist at the, the Sydney 2000 Games. And he'd just switched over from the Olympic team to the Paralympic team. And he was what is known as a pilot. And he was looking for a visually impaired athlete to ride on the back of the tandem with him. And I said, well, yeah, I might, might know a guy who might be interested. And essentially went from there of just being in the right place at the right time led to an opportunity, which ultimately has led to, to over a decade of success in cycling. Wow. What a seminal moment. Isn't it brilliant? I wonder whether that gives you um, a sort of sense of serenity when you're, when you're on the start line or when big things are happening and when you can perhaps feel slightly overwhelmed by the training schedule or the crowd or everything else, that the whole reason you're there is because that one very serendipitous moment happened for you yeah i think you're right actually i never really considered that but equally i'd been through so many years in sport where i was never successful as well and i was just grafting away never really getting anywhere and and cycling hasn't always been easy and there have been defeats as well but i spent a lot of time you know achieving uh, winning medals and things and i guess i just look back and although i I work hard now. I look back at those times when I was working as hard in athletics and getting nowhere and then ultimately ending up at the job center. So it's just, it's nice to to feel that I kind of reward and equally know that by putting myself out there and, you know, I was someone who was incredibly shy, never put myself out there at all. And even the thought of making a phone call was something that terrified me and it still does actually. But the fact I, on that day, picked up the phone to book a session at Manchester, which I was living in Aberdeen at the time. It was a seven and a half hour train journey to get there. I had to stay overnight and come back. It was this huge commitment, which was so out of character for me, but there was some reason I felt the need to do it. And just to see that, that reward, it's something I guess it's all stuck with me that if you really put yourself in uncomfortable situations, then good things can actually come out of it. I can't let you just move on. Sorry, Damien, without focusing on the fact that you're a multiple gold medal winning athlete. And you just said you find it difficult to pick up the phone sometimes. Yeah, genuinely. It's, just, it's uh, a small thing. How, I don't know. How, how do you square that away? What, what worries you about that? I mean, I would rather pick up the phone than try and win a gold at the Paralympics, by the way. Yeah, I, a lot of people say that. But genuinely, even the, it's the small details that get me. So the thought of like getting a train and traveling to be at a meeting at a certain time, that really stresses me out. Whereas those big things, I, I don't know. I could just seem to, to cope with it better that I guess I... I I've got time to, to compute and break it all down, but 
you know, almost facing this huge adversity is something you can kind of just get your head down and get on with. Whereas those little stressors day to day just are things that niggle at me and get at me all the time. So it, I don't know. I just I just see them very differently. Maybe um, maybe that's an offshoot of, of you know growing up with this disability. I don't know, or maybe it's just me. But um, yeah, I take a, a big challenge any day of the week. But I'm actually so pleased you've said that because I I have friends who are very similar, and one of them has exactly that. You cannot get hold of her on the phone because it worries her so much talking on the phone. And there are big things that those friends dream of doing and should be doing that they don't do because they say, well. <laughs> I can't even answer the phone. So how can I go and do this, do that? So I think it's brilliant for people to hear this, right, who might be similar to you, struggling with the little things, assuming if you struggle with the little things, you can never do the big things. But it's a much better mindset to think, yeah, I struggle with the little things, but the big things can still be done. And that is a really powerful message, I think, from you, Neil. Yeah, I think as well, everyone struggles with the big things. So I almost accept that Oh, everyone else talks about them being hard and big and scary. So I don't feel bad about the fact that I'm nervous about a big race. I do get stressed. I still get really nervous on the start line like anyone does, I think. But that's expected of you, I think. Whereas, yeah, I mean, if I tell people now that I still hate making phone calls, then most of them will probably laugh at me for that. But um, so I guess, yeah, it, it possibly I just there's that acceptance that it's all right to, to be stressed over a big occasion. So I definitely encourage people to, to get out and, and take on the world and, you know, these big goals are the ones that seem huge and scary, but I always find just breaking things down into what I need to do every day just to make that little bit of improvement that'll lead me to that that big end goal is just makes it almost a, an easy journey that you, you're just going through the steps that you've already put out there. And that's kind of been the way my cycling career has been probably for the past, certainly four or five years anyway. So can I pick up on that thing then, Neil? Because Given your journey and the story you've described there about coming down from Aberdeen and almost taking a chance on yourself in a different sport um, is incredible. So when you first tasted success uh, uh, on the stage that you dreamt of for so long, how did you avoid just being satisfied with that and finding something else to do? Because like Jake mentioned in the, in, in the introduction, what's incredible about you is the consistency and the relentlessness of coming back and doing it again and again and again. Would you explain something about that? Because that's a different mindset again. One of the things I've really realised is in order to to make it to the top, I had to have a, a big target. And as I said, that was London 2012 for me um, for so long was in my head so when I was in training sessions and cycling starting out I mean it was really hard transitioning sports initially but I was finding the training tough I just keep saying to myself London 2012 London 2012 I'd remind myself constantly the problem came when I got to London 2012 and I, I won a gold medal um, and then suddenly that big goal's gone um, you're a Paralympic champion that's great but that whole what's next thing hit me and uh you know, I did take some time off of cycling at that point just to reflect a bit and and realize there were these targets that I still had. So I wanted to take the sport on to new levels. And particularly, I realized that I wanted to show that people with disabilities were capable of performing as well as people who are considered fully able-bodied. And I decided that this was something I had to do was, was take our event onto levels that were at least comparable if not better than what the able-bodied olympic counterparts were doing and that became my my big target um and that was a 
a big old journey uh, from where I initially broke the world record on my event. We, we clocked a time of um, just over 62 seconds. That's for a one kilometer. And the able-bodied guys were breaking the minute barrier. So it was a couple of seconds, which is huge in that kind of time scale. But that became my, my goal. Um, and I knew it wasn't something I was going to do within the space of a couple of weeks or a few months. This was going to be years and years of work. And ultimately, that's something that in 2018 at the, the Commonwealth Games, uh, Matt and I managed to achieve when we, we broke the world record at 50. Well, at that point, it was... Um, just beforehand, it was 59.4 seconds. And then a year later, we went 59.2, which is the fastest ever kilometer by any bike at sea level. Uh, now, we ride in a tandem, and it's a bit different to solo bikes. It's not directly comparable, but it is very, very similar to the times that we seem to do. So the fact we've actually gone out there and, and gone the quickest that anyone's gone has really been that target I was aiming for. And to achieve that was just incredible. It's going to show that Parasport is you know, all about elite performance. It's not about these people who are, you know, almost out for a day out who have just overcome adversity. It's it's not like that at all. It's, um, you know, you have to be absolutely 100% committed to this. And uh, it's amazing what, what many of them are doing. And I'm so proud that we were able to do that as well. See, what I find incredible is that mindset to not only then just think about achieving a goal, but to go on and change your sport in many ways, change the perception of it. Which leads me to the obvious question of when you're physically unable to continue pushing these boundaries, what are you going to apply that same thinking to next then? It's a really good question. I've had to reflect on that a little bit, particularly after uh, the Paralympics in 2016 in Rio. Um, it was a bit of a an eye-opening moment for me there where I went into that event as massive, massive favourite myself. And it was Pete Mitchell I was riding with up to there. We'd gone undefeated for four years since the London race we've gone undefeated in international competition it was an incredible run um but we went there as, as overwhelming favorites and and sadly uh, came away with the silver had a team from the Netherlands pipped us on the day with a, an incredible performance and I uh, you know I'd won a silver medal at the Paralympic Games but for me it was this huge absolute failure and it was absolutely devastating and you know I just looked on that silver as just being essentially dirt it was nothing to me at that time I guess I reflected at that point where I thought maybe this is the start of the end of my career coming where maybe I needed to look elsewhere and realize I didn't have another source of income or didn't really know who I was outside of sport either you know I dedicated so much of my life to sport I didn't feel like I had anything else to offer the world again taking that time to reflect and looking back on my career I realized that I'd actually learned a lot of things being involved in elite sport, many people do, where I learned how to become the best in the world at something, how to strategize to get there, and then to stay there for a number of years. Um, I learned, as we spoke about already, how to deal like under extreme pressure of performing you know, at that big race when it really counts. And I'd learned that kind of mindset of, of an athlete where you perform day in, day out, regardless of how you're feeling. And I wondered how I could kind of apply that to, to other areas. And that's when I realized that as you guys are looking at as well, that within the business world, within whatever anyone's doing, to be honest, these lessons are so important about how you get the most out of yourself. So now the idea that I could potentially bring this sort of method that I put together to the world of business, perhaps to other sporting teams and kind of share my knowledge that I've gained over the years really excites me. That idea of still 
being at the cutting edge of performance, that's what, where I want to be. So that's what I, I want to do. I want to want to help others achieve their full potential. Because um, I think often the people with the most talent don't reach the top necessarily because they don't have the tools at their disposal to get there. And that's something that's that's always irritated me. So that's that's my goal really is to help those with the most talent become the best at what they do. Love it. So good. Um, Neil, we've reached the point of our quick fire questions. Hit it, come on. So I hope you're ready for these. We don't tend to get quick fire answers though, do we, Damien? <laughs> very rarely. Right, so let's start then with something which is very close to Damien's heart, non-negotiable behaviours. What are the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and everyone around you has to buy into? Punctuality is one. I can't stand lateness. Um, grit, that ability to kind of dig in day in, day out, no matter what. Uh, and I think the ability to take a step back and look at things logically, kind of gain perspective. Um, yeah, I'd say those three. What advice would you give a teenage Neil just starting out? Accept your disability, accept who you are. Um, that was such a long learning curve for me and something I'm still almost coming to terms with. Like, for instance, I wouldn't, I'm someone with a visual impairment, I wouldn't use a white cane or anything for many years because that made me look obviously disabled. Um, and I, I kind of thought it was a weakness to use something like a, a white cane <laughs> and it wasn't until I started actually using one. It wasn't actually until I met my, my now wife, Laura, who's totally blind. And this is a, an interesting moment for life. I think we could all learn from where she kind of said, we started seeing each other a bit and she said to me, oh, do you want to go out to a concert, uh, to a gig? And I said, oh, I can't, you know, cause I, I can't really see in the dark and it's loud. It's quite disorientating. And she said, Oh, right, because I'm totally blind and I go to gigs all the time. Um, so I, th I thought maybe you would. <laughs> and I thought, all right, yeah, that's, um, that's a kick up the rear that we all need. Wow. And that's when I really started to accept my disability. And, you know, I started using a white cane to get around just to, to alert people to the fact that I might not see them and I might walk into them. And it's been massively empowering. Uh, and I can't believe how stupid almost I was for trying to hide something that yeah. defines who I am, you know. Wow. She sounds like a very important part of the story. Oh, yeah. Are you happy? Uh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I'm happy. I don't know if I'm satisfied. Maybe that's a different question. But, you know, I, I still feel like there's a, a lot I want to achieve. But I'm becoming more proud and, and happy with, with where I'm at now, I think. Yeah. How important is legacy to you? Yeah, that's huge. I mean, we spoke about wanting to progress my sport. I want to... I want to empower people who feel either disadvantaged or feel they've, you know, whether they've got a disability that they can actually go out there and, and be what they want to be. If I could leave some sort of impact for others in that regard, that would be huge. So I, yeah, I'd, I'd love to leave my sport in a, a much better place and I'd love to, to help others. And finally, your one single lesson for people listening to this, Neil, to live a high performance life. Yeah, I think it's just that case of making that bit of progress every day. I've always prided myself on even those days when I, I you know, I don't really fancy it. I just, um, I wake up, I think I could really go for an easy day right now. That ability to still just do one thing every day that just takes that little bit of step forward in your journey is so, so important. So just keep moving forward. On behalf of Jake and I, Neil, and all our listeners, I think what you've given us today is uh, has been gold dust, I think. The ability to not allow yourself to be framed by perceptions or by some of the challenges or, as you would describe it, as disabilities, and instead come to see them as superpowers and strengths has been uh, has been really enlightening for us 
to be able to listen to. And I know that given your track record of success uh, in two sports, however much you define your athletics career as not successful, I think it's incredibly exciting to see what the next chapter is going to hold and how you can equip other people with the tools and techniques and, and mental tricks that you've adopted that they can apply in their own lives. So thank you very much. It's been it's been a real humbling but enlightening experience to sit and chat with you. So thank you very much. No, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Damien. Jake. What I found really interesting with that chat is that I just assumed that when you're a multiple medal winner, multiple world record holder, competed for your country, overcome you know a really difficult disability and still had a successful life, that you would be in a constant place of permanent happiness. But that's not, I don't, I get that's not the case with Neil, is he? He's having to fight hard every single day in, in quite a few different areas, I think. Yeah, I think what was really fascinating in our conversation with Neil was the journey that he's been on throughout his life, you know, when he spoke about from his childhood of almost feeling stigmatised by his disability through to um, coming away from the Paralympic finals and having to sign on at the job centre and then taking a chance on him coming down to Manchester and having a go with the cycling. This is a guy that has constantly been struggling. And I think what was really interesting was that it was after each of those moments when he spoke about taking time away to stop, think and reflect is a really valuable springboard for him to go on and, and meet the next challenge. And also the message he gave us, which is that he's happy, but he's not satisfied. That is a, a also a, a recurring theme, isn't it? Yeah, I heard echoes in uh, Neil's response there from our interview we did with Sean Wayne, the England rugby league coach, of this idea of never settling, never being satisfied with what you've done, always looking for the next challenge, the next thing to improve on. It's really good. Listen, thanks again for taking the time. What was the, What's your sort of single biggest takeaway from that conversation? Don't ever feel that you're stuck. There's always opportunities. We just need to open our mind up and look for for opportunities to get ourselves unstuck from whatever situation we can sometimes find ourselves in. I love it. Thanks, Damien. Great. Thanks again, Jake. Well, thanks as always for listening to the High Performance Podcast. Don't forget, you can find us on YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram. You can check out highperformancepodcast.co.uk. But Damien, before we say goodbye to people, let's just remind them there's one other way that they can now absorb the High Performance Podcast. Yep, and that's about ordering our fantastic book that comes out on the 9th of December. Yes! Yeah, that enthusiasm there, Jay. Love that. Much better, <laughs> much better than at the start of this episode. Yeah, Damien's right. Um, right now on Amazon, you can pre-order the book head to our social media accounts to get all the details and swipe ups and links and all that sort of stuff but we are really really excited to bring you this book it is everything that we believe in everything that we stand for and we've put our heart and soul into making it something special so we're really excited about that um thank you for listening thank you to the whole team thank you to um damien for just being the person without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible um thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you again soon for another episode of the High Performance Podcast. Go and pre-order the book. Bye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.